we transition now to the time of this live stream in which we commit ourselves to the preaching of God's word. As we begin, let's do a little word association. What comes to your mind when you hear this word? Ready? Samaritan. Good? The good Samaritan? How remarkable that Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan would have such an effect on Western culture that Samaritans are now remembered as do-gooders. The ones that go above and beyond the call of duty to help those in need. And it's ironic, too, because in Jesus' day, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And feelings were mutual. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And yet it is Jesus' profound parable of the Good Samaritan, which lives on in the minds and memories of the people who have heard it, sensing its beautiful illustration of neighbor love and the golden rule, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And yet, while the parable of the Good Samaritan is beautiful and memorable, it's just as often misunderstood. You see, when we first read this parable, we assume that it's teaching us to do good, to follow the example of the Good Samaritan. But as we'll see in the passage this morning where this parable is found, Jesus spoke this parable to a proud man who thought he was good. And the point Jesus makes with this parable is that none of us are good enough to earn eternal life. None of us are good enough to earn eternal life. We are in a study in the Gospel of Luke, and today we come to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke is one of the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament that records the life and ministry of Jesus with a particular emphasis, as all of the Gospels have, on his Death and resurrection for sinners. If you remember where we are in the context of Luke, this passage comes at the tail end of Jesus' second commissioning, where he sent out an additional 72 to represent him to the towns and the villages that he would visit on his way to Jerusalem, where he would meet his death. These 72 messengers return with joy and uh, with a report of great success in preaching the gospel, performing miracles in Jesus' name, and casting out demons. And yet, Jesus encourages them to rejoice, not in the fact that the demons submit to them, but that their names have been written in heaven. That is, they shouldn't rejoice in their authority or their position here on earth or their gifts or even their ministry success, but that they are to find joy in their certain salvation. And last Sunday, we saw the joy of King Jesus as he prayed to God the Father. Jesus rejoiced in his Father's will that the Father was hiding the truth from the wise and understanding and revealing the truth to little children. And that such hiding and revealing was God, God's good will. So, for context, this is very important in understanding our current uh, passage, our, our current section. This morning we'll be looking at Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And in our passage, Luke is answering the question that has been raised in the last section. 
Why is it that the wise and understanding are not receiving the gospel message? Why is it that these wise and understanding, the religious establishment, are rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah? And the answer is very simply pride. Pride. So as we'll see in terms of an overarching theme from our passage this morning, the proud reject the gospel of the kingdom because they seek to justify themselves through law-keeping. But the humble recognize their spiritual poverty and their need for Jesus and his loving salvation. So the proud reject the gospel of the kingdom because they're seeking to justify themselves through law-keeping, but the humble recognize their spiritual poverty and their need for Jesus and his loving salvation. I pray that this morning, that through this passage, that we would see Christ's love who paid the debt, not of his friends, but of his enemies. Let's begin by reading the beginning of our passage. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in Luke 10 and verse 25. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he, that is Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor, that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There's more to this passage, but we'll end there for now. In terms of the context, as we've said in the section before this, Jesus has been saying that, God the Father in his perfect will has been hiding the truth from the wise and understanding. Luke is now answering the question, why are the wise and understanding rejecting the gospel? Well, here we have the answer. Behold, a lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. The lawyers were uh, uh, always connected with the scribes. It seems that these were the particular religious leaders who steward. God's word, both by inscribing God's word. That's why they were called scribes, because they would literally write out the Old Testament scriptures into new scrolls. And every scroll that they had was handwritten. And these scribes then were experts in the law because they knew the law through their constant uh, interaction with it as they were writing it out. They had much of it memorized. And then these scribes and the lawyers were responsible not only for writing out God's word and understanding God's word and the law, but also explaining its meaning to God's people. And the lawyers, it appears, were responsible for determining the law's application to specific situations. This is what lawyers do. Now, Luke had already noted back in chapter 7 what the religious leaders were like. In Luke 7, verses 28 to 30, Luke says this. Jesus had 
uh, is explaining that John the Baptist is among those born of women, the, the greatest. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus is holding up John the Baptist as being a, a great man. And what makes him great is that he had prepared the way for Jesus to come. And in verse 29, Luke records this. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, that is, by John. So do you see how Luke has described the religious leaders and even the lawyers, which is what this particular man is, that they are those that reject the purpose of God, having rejected the prophet, John the Baptist, the last prophet, and they are now rejecting Jesus too. We see this also from our passage, the way that Luke describes what he's doing. He stands up, it's, he says, he stood up, which is a sign of reverence for a teacher. But then Luke adds to put him to the test. While the lawyer presented like he was treating Jesus with respect, in actual fact, he was asking a question not to receive the answer with an open heart, but to test Jesus, to actually put himself in the place of a judge, judging Jesus. He was coming with a critical spirit from a place of judgment. And this is what the religious leaders did in their relationship with Jesus. And yet look at Jesus' patience with this man. Jesus is God himself in human flesh. He can see into this man's heart. He knows what's there. And yet he patiently and lovingly engages him in an evangelistic conversation. The man asks a question. The question is a good one, a profound one, perhaps the most important question a person could ask. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And as important as this question is, do you see that there's an assumption behind it? An assumption that this man begins with, that there is something that the man can do to inherit eternal life, eternal salvation. How do I get it by my effort? How can I earn my way to heaven? Now, do you notice that Jesus doesn't correct him at this point? Well, he might have. Look at Jesus' patience with this man. The man is part of the religious establishment, those that have set themselves against Jesus. They regard Jesus as a threat, as an enemy. And yet Jesus patiently and lovingly engages with him. There's much that we can learn from Jesus in his approach here. He is patient and loving, and winsome. So, Jesus, in his love, walks the man's thinking out to its full conclusion. He walks out the man's thinking to its natural conclusion, and so he asks, well, if you're asking what must you do to inherit eternal life, Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That is, if you're looking for something to do to inherit eternal life, let's get straight what God's standard is. And the man answers admirably. He quotes from two passages, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.8, with a beautiful summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
verse 27. And Jesus agrees with the man's summary. You have answered correctly, he says in verse 28. Jesus himself had summarized the law's standards in this exact way in Mark 12, 30 and 31, and Matthew 22, 37 and 38. Love God completely with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbors wholeheartedly as you would love yourself. This is all that God requires, as if it's such a small thing. And so Jesus tells the man, do this and you will live. What is Jesus doing here? Is he saying that we can earn our way to heaven? Well, in a sense, he is. You see, there is a way to earn salvation through our works by being perfect. Perfect obedience to God's law would earn God's favor. And that is just Jesus' point. What does Jesus do with a person who believes that he or she is good, who is convinced that they deserve God's favor on their own merits? Well, Jesus lovingly walks out their thinking to its conclusion by showing them the full extent of God's perfect standard of holiness and see how they measure up. Jesus' point here is to demonstrate the reality that the man, in fact, that you and me, that none of us meet that standard. Jesus is lovingly pointing out this man's sin. And the man's sin, just like your sin and my sin, goes far deeper and even he knows. And no amount of good works can paper over the sin that this man has already committed in his life and the sin that resides in his heart. This is the reality that all of us must face, that all of us have sin in our hearts. And it is out of a heart full of sin, of rebellion against our good and loving creator God that leads to our little sins, the small things that we do in sinning against others and against God. You see, we have a heart of sin, and it is out of that heart that the individual sins that come out in our words and in our actions are an overflow of. The problem is deep, that all of us have rebelled against God and are living against him. We have thwarted his good and loving authority, and we have decided ourselves to be king of our own lives. This began with our uh, forefather, Adam and Eve, in the garden, where they first sinned, which led all of humanity then into sin. But this is also the reason Jesus came. This is why Jesus is here. Because of our sin. Now, what's fascinating about this passage is that Jesus continues to talk with the man who believes that he can be good enough to earn God's favor. But there is an interesting response that this man has to Jesus telling him, do this and you will live. And the response is, who is my neighbor? Who was my neighbor? You see, this was a common question that was engaged with in Jesus' time. Who is it that we're responsible to love and to love as ourselves? It was commonly taught by the scribes and by the lawyers that that we were permitted, that they were permitted to 
love their neighbors, but to hate their enemies. That would be added on. So how do they understand Leviticus 19? Well, yes, love your neighbor. That is at least the Jews or at least the Jews that were nearby you. But you have every right to hate your enemies and God's enemies. And this lawyer seeks to defend himself. He is a lawyer. He is wanting to, it says, justify himself. He's wanting to paint himself in a positive light. Now, there is a reason that lawyers at times have a negative reputation. Because while there are good lawyers out there, and lawyers are necessary to society, upholding justice, defending those that are weak, holding out uh, what, what good laws teach. I love that we have a member who's a lawyer in Dulce. She's a good lawyer. But just as there are good lawyers, there are bad lawyers. And just as there are lawyers who are full-time lawyers, the rest of us at times are lawyers. Lawyers in our minds, in our hearts, looking to justify ourselves. My son, my youngest, is two years old, and he is already a very good lawyer. He comes to me on an almost daily basis, tattling on things that his older brother has done to him. And he's already a good lawyer. He will say, Daddy, Jackie, hit me. And I'll ask him, Jude, what did you do? And he will say, Jackie, hit me. That is, he will focus on only the parts that make himself look good or that justify himself as a wounded party. But he'll never admit to what he did in contribution to this fight until Jack comes and tells me the full story that Jude hit him first. Now, I'm not here to justify either of my sons. They're both wrong. But all of us can be these kinds of lawyers seeking to justify ourselves. And that's what this man does with the question. Luke tells us. He asks the question, who is my neighbor, desiring to justify himself? And it is with this question, who is my neighbor, that the parable of the Good Samaritan comes. You see what the man is doing. He's wanting to draw boundaries over who it is that I'm responsible for. And he's clearly wanting to justify himself by, by believing that he's done what's right, at least to my neighbors that I am responsible for, maybe my family, maybe the person who lives right across from me. But clearly not everyone, right? And so Jesus replies with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus speaks to demonstrate what love of neighbor looks like. But as we'll see, he doesn't answer the lawyer's question. He reframes it and he redefines it and he upends the man's categories. And I hope he will upend our categories as well. Let's read this parable beginning in verse 30, Luke 10, 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, uh, coins worth a day's wage, uh, a day's wage each, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This parable is beautiful. It's heavy, but also beautiful. And it's, it's short, but memorable. Once you hear it, you can't forget it. Jesus tells the story of an ordinary man on his way traveling from two of the the largest cities in Israel, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road was famous. It was infamous as being a dangerous place because it was rocky and along the way were many caves. And because that way was desert in between these two cities, it was a place where often Robbers and thieves would waylay strangers, particularly if they were on their own and vulnerable. So this is a story that that anyone in Israel could relate to and understand that this man was in danger. And the man, Jesus says in this story, is stripped and beaten and left half dead by these thieves. Now, as you hear the story, you can relate to his plight. He's in real danger and need. He is on the verge of death if nothing happens to intervene. And Jesus then has two people show up. By chance, first, a priest was going down that road. And as you listen, you'd be excited for the man. Here's hope. Here's a priest. The priests were those that were uh, full-time workers in the uh, the temple. And it was their job to represent God's people to God, particularly by offering sacrifices for God's people. Here's a man, a priest, who knows God's law. Surely he would love his neighbor by caring for this man. And what does the man do? It says that he passed him by on the other side. Now you can imagine that this man might have many excuses for doing what he did. As a priest, he's leaving Jerusalem heading to Jericho, perhaps leaving his service in the temple and heading back home to Jerusalem. As he sees the man, he could come up with all kinds of excuses why he shouldn't be the one to be bothered. It may be that that he thinks the man is dead already. And if he touches a dead body, he would then be unclean and not be able to be reunited with his family. It may be that he has uh, appointments in his appointment book. But regardless of the reason, the point that Jesus makes is that he has no compassion and he goes by not regarding the man's plight and situation. Likewise, a Levite, also someone who works full-time in the temple, the Levites were responsible for all of temple worship. While the priests were focused on the sacrifices, the Levites served in every other area of the temple. Another man, part of the religious life of Israel, who does the same thing. He passes by on the other side and ignores the man. Now, Jesus does something incredible here. 
he makes a hated Samaritan the hero of his story. The Samaritans were those that lived in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. And it was the northern kingdom that rebelled against God. And it was the area of Samaria that ever since then had been full of false teaching and false worship. And the Samaritans had set themselves against the Jews down in Judea, the southern kingdom, ever since. And these hatreds went back generations went back hundreds of years but jesus has a samaritan those that are hated by israel those that are false teachers and false worshipers a samaritan be the one who shows kindness to the jew now any jew in jesus day would have assumed that if the if the situation had been reversed and it was the samaritan that had been in need that the Jew would have every reason, every justification, every excuse possible for ignoring a Samaritan on the way. But Jesus flips the script. And in his story, he has the Samaritan come along this man and do what the upright Jews failed to do. Look at what the Samaritan does. As he journeyed, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, the man's response begins with his heart, a heart of compassion. It then moves with a display of love that involves meeting his physical needs. He cares for his wounds. He puts wine and oil on the wounds. Oil would soothe those wounds. Wine would kill any infection. Then he meets his practical needs. He puts him on his own animal, brings him to an inn physically takes care of him. And then when he leaves the next day, he provides for the man's financial needs. Innkeepers were not known to be people of integrity. So he gives the innkeeper money and then he promises if this man accrues any debt in the meantime, that he is good for it. He wants to ensure that this man doesn't become an indentured servant to the innkeeper. What a remarkable account. But then you see Jesus reframes the question with a question of his own. He isn't answering the question that the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? He reframes it. Who proved to be a neighbor to the man in need? You see, as one commentator uh, puts it, neighbor for Jesus is not a noun here. but Jesus makes it a verb. It isn't a person that we need to consider, am I or am I not responsible for that person? But neighbor becomes a verb. Something that we are called to do, to be a neighbor to those in need around us. But what Jesus is doing with this account is holding out that the law's standards are high. The law leaves us and should leave us without hope of doing enough to earn eternal life. And this is why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to help us to understand that we could never get back to God on our own. And this is the reason why these wise and understanding are not receiving the kingdom that's being preached because they're too proud and because they believe that they can do it on their own. Friends, if you're hearing this, this, this is the wonder of the gospel message, that we can never do enough to earn God's favor. 
but that this is the very reason that Jesus has come. Now, the remarkable thing about this parable is that it leaves us realizing that we cannot earn our way to God. But the beautiful thing from this parable is that Jesus himself can be seen in this parable. Jesus himself is the one who has perfectly kept the law's standard. He has loved God with all of his heart, his soul, his strength, and his mind. We saw that in the last passage as he declared his love and prayer to the Father, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. Jesus perfectly loves God. Jesus also perfectly loves his neighbor. And it is in Jesus' love for neighbor that we can have hope. But Jesus loves his neighbor in a a remarkable way because Jesus left heaven out of his love for God that overflowed into his love for humankind. He came because he saw our plight, like the Samaritan, the man on the road. And while Jesus would have every excuse, every reason for not showing compassion and kindness to us who were not his neighbors, but his enemies, his a rebel creation, yet Jesus did this. He showed compassion. He had compassion, and he came to meet our deepest need, and he did this through living this perfect life on earth that we couldn't live, loving God perfectly, loving his neighbors perfectly. Not only did he keep the law perfectly, he laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross for sinners like you and me. This is the wonder of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not that we can somehow earn our way to God by being a good neighbor and loving God enough, but know that we can't do that, but that Jesus did. He showed compassion on us, and he laid down his life for us, for you and me. If you will turn from your sins, if you will turn from your attempts to justify yourself and save yourself with your actions, and will turn to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Friends, if you've never done this, this is what the gospel calls you to do, to turn from your sins, from your attempts at self-justification, and to come to Christ and to find in him a perfect savior, the one who has done enough for you, the one who has laid down his life for your sins, and the one that can reconcile you with your creator God forever. This indeed is why Jesus has come. But not only is this a wonderful picture for us of the gospel, but now for those of us who have come to know Christ, the one who has shown compassion to us and met us in our needs, lived for us, died for us, we too can be freed now to live like Jesus and to, as the scripture says, fulfill the very law. We can now with the power of the Spirit, love God. Not perfectly, but growing day by day. When we not only grow in our love for God, but that then spills over in our ability to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is only through God's strength and power and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we can be made new to begin to love God and love our neighbor as we never have been able to. Brothers and sisters, there is something very unique about this parable. And one important element of it 
is that Jesus is upending our categories in terms of the excuses and justifications that we make for not loving certain people in our lives. Do you know that this goes deep? It goes deep in all of our hearts. And all of us can be like this lawyer on a daily basis, deciding who it is that we're going to show love to or who it is that we're responsible for. It may be that you, like these Jews, have a particular prejudice a prejudice or a bias against certain kinds of people, or perhaps a particular person in your life, someone that annoys you, someone that frustrates you, someone that you don't like, somebody that you're suspicious of. You know what Jesus is doing here is he is upending our categories and helping us realize that we are responsible to love, not just the lovable and not just those that love us, but we are to love those around us who are in need, all of those who are in need even those that are hard for us to love. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you on the one hand to not seek to justify yourself or be a lawyer attempting to prove your case right, but to draw near to the Lord, to know that he loves you greatly, that he has loved you greatly in Christ, and that you can now love him and that his love can overflow in you to be able to love those around you and to give you the strength to love those even that are difficult to love. As we've seen from this passage, it is the proud who reject the gospel of the kingdom as they seek to justify themselves through law keeping. But the humble recognize their spiritual poverty and need for Jesus and his loving salvation. And it is through Jesus that we are now freed to love God and love neighbor as he calls us to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage that is so beautiful and so rich, simple and deep, a passage that cuts to our very hearts. We pray that we that we would see the gospel as beautiful, that we would see Christ's love as wonderful. And having seen Christ's love for us and God's love for us in Christ, that we would be so changed that our hearts would overflow in love for you and then with your love to love others too. We pray that you give us wisdom, each one of us, to know how this applies to our particular situation, to our particular day and particular week, and that you would empower us to do each good work that you've called us to. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.